1: The presenting sponsor of The Wilderness is Honey, the easiest way to save money when shopping online. John, hit me with some values Trump is trying to kill. Integrity, fairness, and his favorite, honesty. Huh. Do you remember those? I remember a time when there were things we talked about, you know? You know who does remember them? Honey. It's a free shopping tool that automatically searches the internet for the best promo codes every time you buy something online. Honey believes that everyone deserves the lowest prices possible and all the things they love. That's why it works on over 30,000 sites, even Amazon. Not every price is created equally, so Honey looks out for all shoppers. I have a story, John. What's that? Uh,
2: it's actually not my story. Uh, a friend of mine told me. Uh, he's a Republican member of Congress, and um, <laughs> he was uh, very excited about passing a corporate tax bill. Yeah, he was in a celebratory mood. He was. He had passed his corporate tax bill, and he realized that he had actually, believe it or not, passed a lot to save himself a bunch of money and he looked at that pile of cash and he said, I'm gonna buy a fucking yacht. <laughs> Are we cursing in the wilderness? Yeah. Cool. And uh <laughs> so he goes on uh, I, I frankly we don't have enough cursing in the wilderness like so I said a,
1: once in a while, so we gotta earn the rating we get. So good, go crazy. Good, 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 in the good.
2: So anyway, uh he goes to yachtinyourface.com <laughs> 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 and he says, uh give me the gimme a yacht that says Fuck the working class so hard they disappear off the face of the earth, and a beautiful yacht popped up. And then, right when he's about to click check out, ba-doop, no, honey,
1: nope, honey did not give him a discount because you know what honey cares about? Honesty, fairness, and integrity. And
2: honey popped up and said, "Yeah, here's your uh, here's your tip. Shut this window, you you uh, you craven goon." <laughs> said honey,
1: continue with the app. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Honey has 10 million members and 90,000-plus five-star reviews. That's a lot of good five-star reviews right there. Um, it's free to use. It installs in just two clicks. You can get Honey for free at joinhoney.com wilderness. That's joinhoney.com wilderness. Everyone should be able to save some money on what they buy. You shouldn't have to be told the promo code uh, just because you're <laughs>
2: special. Sometimes people do need to be told the promo code,
1: John. <laughs> Still, right? Anyway, Honey will help you out with that.
3: Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald
4: John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability. And will, to the best of my ability.
3: Preserve, protect, and defend.  — Observe, protect, and defend— — The Constitution of the United States. — The
5: Constitution of the United States. —
3: So help me God. — So help me God. —
6: So help me God. — So help me God. — So help me God. — So help me
4: God. — We lost the most winnable open presidential race in modern American history. It was so winnable. Donald Trump's a fucking clown. I'll use a Patriots example for you, but if the Patriots lost to the Cleveland Browns because of one bad call at the end, like you say, oh, if that call went different, the Patriots would have won. But the question you got to ask yourself is, why were the Patriots one bad call away from losing to the Cleveland Browns? And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves.
1: Sorry, we have to talk about 2016 again. I know, it's not great. But Don't worry. We're not going to relitigate every little dumb argument from the most miserable election of our lives. We're only going to relitigate some of them. We know by now that Trump had help from Russia and Jim Comey's letter and a media that couldn't tear itself away from the Trump show, even when it was just an empty podium. But no matter how much or little this all made a difference, Democrats still need to figure out why we were one bad call away. And more importantly, what we can do to make sure that we don't find ourselves in that position again. So we're gonna talk about the candidates we chose, the campaigns that they built, and how they all navigated the cultural and economic tides of the 2016 election. Ready? Good. Let's dive into this dumpster fire one more time. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to the wilderness.
0: You know, nothing truly prepares you for the demands of the Oval Office. Until you've sat at that desk, you don't know what it's like to manage a global crisis or send young people to war. But Hillary has been in the room. She's been part of those decisions. She knows what's at stake in the decisions our government makes. And no matter how daunting the odds, No matter how much people try to knock her down, she never, ever quits. That is the Hillary I know. That's the Hillary I've come to admire. And that's why I can say with confidence, there has never been a man or a woman more qualified than Hillary Clinton to serve as President of the United States of America.
1: If you had told me in 2008 that eight years later I'd be helping President Obama write a speech endorsing Hillary Clinton as his successor, I'd have said that you were out of your goddamn mind. I wasn't Hillary's biggest fan back then. The primary between her and Obama was brutal. Sometimes it got even nastier and more personal than the one in 2016. But after a few years of being around Secretary Clinton in cabinet meetings and on foreign trips, I really came around. I thought she was brilliant. I thought she was caring and genuine and worked harder than anyone else in the administration. I liked that she was such a team player. I liked that she wasn't going to try to distance herself from Obama or run as a more centrist version of the president. I just liked her. I could see her as president. She's always had that quality.
7: So we arrived at Wellesley and we found, as all of us have found, that there was a gap between expectation and realities. And the challenge now is to practice politics as the art of making what appears to be impossible, possible.
6: Does
8: it concern you that maybe other people feel that you don't fit the image that we have created for the governor's wife in Arkansas?
5: In a way, it's a kind of a tribute to the state that someone who may or may not fit an image is accepted on on her own terms. I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but I, what I decided to do was to fulfill my profession, which I entered before my husband was in public life. Do you think the American people are ready for a first lady who is that involved at a policy-making level? in the White House? Well, I hope so, because I think what I represent is generational change. It's not just about me. I think that every American is entitled to guaranteed health insurance not just because it is the right thing to do for the individual, but because it is the smart thing for our country to do, to make sure everybody is in These folks
9: out here think that she has remodeled the role of First Lady, and maybe she has.
5: Let it be that human rights are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights once and for all. I am honored today announce my candidacy for the United States Senate from New York! I will work my heart out for you for the next six years. Somebody in that White House told the EPA, don't tell the people well, of New well, York the truth, food, truth. That I will well and faithfully... ...discharge the duties of the we office. We have, in the leadership of uh, President Obama, someone who wants us to reach out to the world to do so without illusions. Understanding that the difficulties I am running for president of the United States.
9: We have breaking news tonight. So we'll be right Hillary Clinton will become the first woman nominated by a major political party for the presidency of the United States.
8: Hi, my name is Jake Sullivan, and I was the senior policy advisor on Hillary Clinton's twenty sixteen campaign for president. I did not meet Hillary Clinton until I interviewed with her for a job on the 2008 campaign, the primary campaign. I met her in early 2007 in her Senate office. And honestly, my first impression of her was that she was a very normal human being in a bizarre way, because I'd obviously seen her on TV for the preceding 15 years. And when you sit down with her, she's somebody who looks you in the eye She asks you questions. She actually listens to the answers, which is fairly unusual for people of her stature. She actually still to this day cuts articles out of newspapers, literally and creates a folder that she'll then carry around in her bag and every now and again – We'd be traveling in some foreign country as secretary of state or in in the years that followed, she'd pull it out and say, here's some things I read that are interesting that I've been thinking about. And that's what's so unusual about her because she's been built into a certain kind of caricature, but in person, she's so down to earth. She is at her best when she is occupying a position where she can actually roll up her sleeves and put policy into action.
5: So it's true. I sweat the details of policy, whether we're talking about the exact level of lead in the drinking water in Flint, Michigan, the number of mental health facilities in Iowa, or the cost of your prescription drugs. Because it's not just a detail if it's your kid. If
8: it's your I think she ultimately decided deal. to run because, at the end of the day, Hillary Clinton believes that if you get a chance to serve in a senior role in government, you can do some unbelievable things for people. And that, more than anything, is what motivated her as First Lady and as Senator and as Secretary of State. I think she looked at the presidency and thought, there's no job in the world where I could do more good for more people than this.
10: I had not worked for Hillary directly, but I had worked for her husband, knew her relatively well. I knew the Clinton world well.
1: Jen Paul Mary was Hillary Clinton's communications director, and before that was Obama's White House communications director.
10: My very first day on the job in March of 2015, Hillary basically vomited up what it had been like to be her for the last 25 years and her interactions with the press and the public and how they reacted to her. It was pretty remarkable. She said she didn't have any answers and... I'm skeptical that the press is ever gonna react to me in a different way, but you should never censor yourself. You should always be frank with me about what you think I need to do, what you think I should do, and I'm gonna say no a lot, but don't ever censor what you think is the best advice. I knew it was gonna be a hard campaign. I didn't think it would be fun, necessarily, but it seemed like, okay, I should do this.
1: In hindsight, it seems odd that everyone in the party establishment just lined up behind Hillary so early. But at the time, it made perfect sense.
7: I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm an op-ed columnist at the New York Times. People forget, but when she started her campaign for president, she was the most respected woman in America, right? Her approval ratings were around 66%. There was no woman with higher approval ratings. And so in retrospect, you can say, well, you know, why did we ever think that, that Hillary Clinton with all of her baggage was a viable candidate? That's why.
11: Harry Reid was very anti-primaries, and Barack Obama was very anti-primaries.
1: Brian Boitler, editor-in-chief of Crooked.com. If a primary could be avoided,
11: it should be avoided. So there was like this institutional reluctance to, to letting every qualified Democrat flood the primary zone. At the time, it seemed justified.
1: Obama always said that his long primary campaign against Hillary Clinton made him a better candidate in the general election. That's true, but it was also 16 months of pure misery for everyone involved. One reason primaries can be particularly nasty is that you have a bunch of candidates from the same party who all have similar positions on the issues, so they end up fighting about differences in their voting records or leadership styles or personal qualities, which can get pretty nasty. That was mostly the case with Obama and Hillary, and there was still lingering resentment among a small segment of Clinton supporters by the time we got to the general election. I think a lot of party leaders wanted to avoid that in 2016. And so if you wanted to run against Hillary, you needed to have real policy and political differences, and you needed to not give a shit what the party establishment thought about you. Lo and behold, Senator Bernie Sanders checked both of those boxes. People
8: don't appreciate how difficult it is to step out of line
1: from what the party structure wants. This is Faz Shakir who's the ACLU's national political director. Before that, he was a senior advisor to Senator Harry Reid, a job he left to become an advisor to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign.
8: At a time when you're coming post-Obama, when a lot of people are feeling like, pretty good job, feeling a little bit of taste in my mouth of wishing that it had been more. Right? You're feeling a little bit of like, man, it probably left something on the table. And at the same time, we see the reasons those things were left on the table is corporate control, corruption over our system, you know, and then here comes Hillary offering essentially, I'm just going to do the same thing. So here comes Bernie, take them on full-throated. Today, with
9: your support and the support of millions of people throughout our country, we begin a political revolution to transform our country economically, politically, socially, and environmentally.
1: Bernie Sanders... 70-year-old socialist from Vermont. Dan Pfeiffer, co-host of Pod Save America and former senior advisor to Barack Obama. Also, for the record, Bernie's 77 years old.
4: It was not surprising to me that for Democrats, there would be an anti-establishment vehicle. There has always been someone in open races who filled that void, right? Howard Dean in 2004, Bill Bradley in 2000. And Jerry Brown, among others.
1: Barack Obama in 2008.
4: Barack Obama in 2008, right. And so someone has always filled that void. He was running a campaign to get his message out. Like he wasn't even trying to win. And so it did not surprise me that Sanders was going to show strength. But I thought once the rubber hit the road,
1: he would fade pretty fast.
12: I remember talking to one of her policy advisors.
1: This is Heather McGee, a policy expert who's advised on Democratic campaigns.
12: And this advisor asked me a very smart question, which is, what would you say about the candidate if it weren't to me? And I responded and said, my biggest concern is that we are in an anti-establishment moment, and I just don't know how Secretary Clinton can be an anti-establishment candidate. I just don't know how she can muster the sense of outrage at what's going on right now when she's a continuation of what's going on right now.
9: When the greed and recklessness and illegal behavior of Wall Street brought this country into the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression of the 30s, the obvious response to that is that you got a bunch of fraudulent operators and that they have got to be broken up. Now, Secretary Clinton was busy giving speeches to Goldman Sachs for $225,000 a speech.
5: I stood up against the behaviors of the banks when I was a senator. I called them out on their mortgage behavior.
1: He certainly figured something out. He certainly spoke to the anxieties of people directly and in principle. Dan Wagner's a data scientist who worked on Barack Obama's 2012 campaign. He says, I recognize the crises in your communities. And he kind of directs people towards an addressable villain. And he speaks to it authentically.
9: There is something profoundly wrong when one family, the Walton family of Walmart, owns more wealth than the bottom 130 million Americans.
7: We always said the biggest asset that we had on the campaign was was Bernie's message. And the second most important asset we had was Bernie as a messenger.
1: Becky Bond, a senior advisor on the Bernie Sanders campaign.
7: So many people saw the Bernie movement as being idealistic, but I think for the people that really got involved, they saw it as the only practical solution. Our problems are so radical, we're going to need radical solutions in order to solve
8: them.
1: Needless to say, the Democratic primaries, starting in Iowa in February of 2016, pretty much went exactly as nobody expected. He's
8: now classifying Iowa's Democratic presidential caucuses as too close to call.
9: Tonight, while the results are still not known, it looks like we are in a virtual tie.
3: Hillary Clinton riding high today after narrowly edging out Bernie Sanders by fractions of a percent in the Iowa caucuses.
9: The people of New Hampshire have sent a profound message to the political establishment, to the economic establishment, and, by the way, to the media established. We won because of your energy. Thank you all.
5: Thank you, Nevada. Thank you so much.
8: CBS News projects Hillary Clinton has defeated Bernie Sanders in today's Democratic caucuses.
10: Bernie Sanders says he is not going anywhere. He is defiant tonight. He says he's taking this all the way past the convention to the very end, and he's got the money right now to go pretty far.
2: He does. But John Carl, pretty big delegate lead for Hillary Clinton right it's now. It's
4: a delegate tsunami for Hillary Clinton tonight. She's got.
8: More- we have breaking news tonight. Hillary Clinton
4: has clinched the majority of delegate support she will need for the Democratic nomination.
1: The primary went all the way until June, and it opened a rift in the Democratic Party. Bernie supporters believe that Hillary Clinton was too tied to the Democratic establishment, too tied to Wall Street, too tied to the past. Hillary supporters believe that Bernie was hurting the party's chances to win in November by attacking Clinton after it was clear she won the nomination. It was hard to tell how much of this Hillary-Bernie divide was real and how much was overhyped by the media and the candidate's most vocal supporters. The divide was definitely on display during the first couple days of the Democratic convention in July— especially after Russia and WikiLeaks released thousands of stolen DNC emails that embarrassed everyone involved.
3: Good evening from Philadelphia tonight where the Democratic National Convention hasn't even started and we already have our first major controversy. The chair of the DNC, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, has announced her resignation.
1: Fortunately, by the end of the convention, things were
0: going pretty well. And tonight, I ask you to do for Hillary Clinton what you did for me you to carry her the same way you carried me she is still the best
9: darn change maker i have ever known
12: we need to pour every last ounce of our passion and our strength and our love for this country into electing hillary clinton as president of the united states of america
1: this is brian boitler again democrats
11: despite a lot of internal tensions and a lot of like infighting at the convention itself put on this presentation. It's just like, you could feel the people in the room realizing that, okay, we can get over this primary and we can like move into the general election. And I tweeted, Hillary Clinton's gonna win or something like that. Realizing that what we're offering
1: is so much better than what we just saw, right? What we just saw was the Republican National Convention, a three-day shit show centered around the theme that everything in America was awful and only one man could fix it
9: hello
3: i'm john voigt i want to share with you the story of my friend donald trump yes
4: yeah, that's right lock her up you know why we're saying that because if i did a tenth a tenth of what she did i would be in jail today under donald trump
1: all lives matter
9: Iran and Russia and Cuba. And here at home for risking America's secrets to keep her own and lying to cover it all up? Imagine a young mother at home with her baby when a violent predator kicks the door in. He's a three time loser who was released from prison early because some politician wanted to show their compassion.
4: Islamic extremist
5: terrorism!
4: I am your voice.
1: Coming up after the break, more of The Wilderness, presented by Honey. The Wilderness is brought to you by FrameBridge. FrameBridge makes it super easy and affordable to frame your favorite things, from art prints and posters to the travel photos sitting on your phone.
2: I have my Trump inaugural tickets framed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Take me a minute to realize what you were saying. Here's how it works. Just go to FrameBridge.com and upload your photo, or they'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. Again... We're all about never leaving your home. Never leave your house. media.
2: Never leave your house. Have it beautifully appointed with couches and... Beds, linens. Frame pictures of you and Kellyanne Conway.
1: (laughs) Preview your item online in any frame style. Choose your favorite or get free recommendations from their talented designers. The expert team at Framebridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door ready to hang. It's a great service. I have a lot of Framebridge stuff in my house. He, He does. I do. He does. Just letting you know. Uh, instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use my code WILDERNESS. Uh, get started today, frame your photos, or send the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, and special events. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code WILDERNESS. You'll save an additional 15% off your first order.
2: So if, like, let's say let's say uh, you got a relative and, and they're um, a racist British person. You could send them a picture of uh, Trump and the Queen. Wouldn't that be a nice keepsake for that relative? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if they're like...
1: On on the day that a bunch of Russians were Brexit,
2: (laughs) Just write Brexit in the card.
1: (laughs) Uh, Get started today on that project. Go to framebridge.com, promo code wilderness. Again, that's framebridge.com, promo code wilderness. The Wilderness is brought to you by Swell. What kind of world do you want for your children? I'd like the worst person to lead it. (laughs) And I got what I dreamed of. <laughs> Would you like one with cleaner air and water? Greater equality? Less reliance on fossil fuels? Sure. Sorry, try the next world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try the moon. <laughs> Do you consider the moon? <laughs> Whatever kind of world you want to see, achieving it takes voting for it with your wallet and choosing to buy from the companies working towards it. That's actually really true. It is true.
2: You know what? Everyone's like, clean energy, clean energy. Well, guess what? Everybody's, everybody's got ExxonMobil stock,
1: and their stock depends on taking evil out of the ground and putting in the air. Dump it. Thanks to Swell, there's now an easy way to support these innovative companies while also funding your future. Swell's portfolios of high-impact, high-growth potential companies target specific sectors like renewable energy, green technology, and disease eradication. Aren't you sick of buying horses for Rex Tillerson? <laughs> <laughs> I am, frankly. And it's not just wishful thinking. (laughs) Stocks of companies with high environmental and social impact have beaten the S&P 500 for 25 years. Take that, BP. (laughs) Progress and profit can coexist. So, if you're ready to make a tangible impact on where the world is heading and invest in the future you believe in, open an account today at SwellInvesting.com slash wilderness, and you're going to get a $50 bonus. That's SwellInvesting.com slash wilderness. Swell, invest in progress. Donald Trump. It's hard to say where this all started, but like most things pertaining to that man, it was probably on Twitter. A
4: year later, Trump tweeted, An extremely credible source has called my office and told me that Barack Obama's birth certificate is a fraud.
1: Trump's political life started with him parroting the same bullshit conspiracy theories and racist garbage that you'd hear on talk radio and see on Fox News. And his presidential campaign was basically the same thing. Trump was a talk radio caller who decided to run for the most powerful job in the world.
6: Trump just seems really different.
1: Lynn Vavrick, professor of political science and communication at UCLA and contributor to the New York Times Upshot.
6: He'll just say anything. Spin, spin, whatever. It doesn't have to be true. Just say it like you believe it and say it over and over again.
4: I know more about ISIS
6: than the generals do,
4: believe me. Number one selling tie anywhere in the world.
6: Number one selling tie anywhere in the world. But he's also a TV character. So a lot of Americans know him as Donald Trump from the boardroom. You know, why do so many people feel like they understand him as a businessman? Because he was on TV doing it. New York City,
4: it's the benchmark for success. Believe me, I know. Trump ice,
6: the purest, best tasting water you can imagine. So when he... Changes his mind day to day and just repeats things and says things. Maybe they're true, maybe they're not, it doesn't matter. People think back to the Donald Trump he was on The Apprentice.
4: I mean, you're so stupid. What you did was just stupid.
6: Where he behaved the same way, but at the end of that particular episode, he was always right. Kevin, you're fired. Sandy, you're fired. Whoa have
4: problems. Life is full of problems. You're fired.
11: The other thing is part of the appeal to Trump was that he gave incredibly simple answers to really complicated problems.
1: This is Adam Serwer, deputy politics editor at The Atlantic.
11: And that's not something that a lot of politicians do well. Trump would just say, this is the problem. There are some bad people. I'm going to hurt the bad people and make it better. There's just a bunch of corrupt people who are preventing us from solving this problem. And once the corrupt people are gone, because I'll get rid of them, I'm just going to make everything better.
6: Also, Trump really—he lit up these racial attitudes. He didn't create them. Everybody knows they exist. They've existed. He just—he lit them up in a way that, you know, we really haven't seen in a long, long time.
4: They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. What do you have to lose? You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good.
6: You have no jobs. What the hell do you have to lose? Everybody knows this is a way that they could get more white voters if they poured some gasoline on race, but nobody would do it. Here comes Donald Trump, And he just goes where no other of the 16 candidates who ran for the Republican nomination in 2016 would go. Are you going to let shame stop you from winning a presidential election?
4: This judge is of Mexican heritage. I'm building a wall. So no
1: Mexican judge could ever be involved in a case that involves you?
4: uh, He's a member of a society where, you know, very pro-Mexico, and that's fine. It's all fine. Except that you're calling into question. uh, Look at my African American over here. Look at him. Are you the greatest?
1: A good portion of the Republican base saw Trump as a successful businessman who would blow up Washington, fix politics, and fight for them. Them, meaning white people. And against all the other stiff, overly scripted, blow dried Republican candidates, it worked. Tableau Donald Trump. A businessman and reality star with no political experience, now the Republican nominee for President of the United States of America.
11: Streamers and
5: balloons
1: inside the hall. So now we're ready to relive our worst nightmare, the general election matchup between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. We don't need to cover all the details. We all remember that Trump said some truly awful and unforgivable shit just about every day
4: you can hear it once, all lives matter. I mentioned food stamps and that guy who's seriously overweight went crazy. They say I have the most loyal people where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. I think Islam hates us.
5: Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Social Such a Security nasty Trust woman. Fund.
4: I moved on her like a <laughs> bitch, but I couldn't get there and she was married. — And all of a sudden, I see her, she's now got the big phony tits. Hey, — And when you're a star, they let you do it. — You can do anything. <laughs> — Whatever you want. — Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> — I
3: can do anything.
1: — And lest we forget, Hillary Clinton spent most of the campaign under investigation by the FBI, which is not ideal.
9: — The American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails.
8: — Thank you. Me too. Me too. <laughs> — I'm here to give
1: you an
9: update
8: on the FBI's investigation of Secretary Clinton's use of a personal email system during her time as secretary. They were extremely careless. We are expressing to justice our view that no charges are appropriate in this case.
1: More on that later. Point is, whether you think it's fair or not, every piece of polling and data showed that these were two of the most unpopular candidates to ever run for president.
3: It was very, very difficult to make a real good guess as to what was going to happen by watching the
1: focus groups. This is David Binder, who conducted focus groups for Democratic campaigns, including Barack Obama's and Hillary Clinton's. Primarily because those people that we were looking at, which
3: tended to be undecided swing voters who sometimes vote for Democrats, sometimes vote for Republicans, they really disliked both candidates to a degree that we had not seen before in the previous campaigns or previous research. You know, one of the techniques that we use in focus groups occasionally is you use projective techniques to get people out of their normal thinking. One of the exercises we do is uh, ask people to think of a candidate in terms of an animal. Like what animal represents Hillary Clinton best? What animal represents Donald Trump best? In the 16 campaign, we, we had people that said the contest between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump was essentially a contest between a snake and a baboon. I can't tell you how many times in our focus group somebody brought up the idea that there's a list of people who had ended up dead or missing because they at some point in their lives had crossed the Clintons.
1: I, this I is heard n- that. This I is heard not. That, from
3: people. that was not one time. That was, I would say, every other focus group. At least one person brought that up
1: again and again. Have you, you ever heard anything like that in any other races with any candidates? That kind no, of. No,
3: I mean the conspiracy stuff generally is getting worse and worse. I think just lately, just because more people are buying conspiracy theories, but uh-huh. it's definitely it would definitely wasn't what what I saw in the Clinton Trump race with regard to conspiracies was unprecedented. And I don't hear anyone talking conspiracies about Trump. They just thought he was an idiot. But with Hillary, there was this concern that she was nefarious. It's not just isolated incidents. A lot of people have brother-in-laws that are sending them these emails that make it sound like Hillary and Bill Clinton have a, uh, a mafia ring that are killing people.
1: We should talk about this. The Clintons have been dealing with scandals since the moment we first heard about the Clintons, from Whitewater and Bill's affairs to Benghazi and Hillary's email server. Some of these scandals were real, but many, like the list of people they supposedly killed, were decidedly bullshit. But talk radio and Fox and the internet have pushed Clinton's scandals forever, and they got plenty of coverage from mainstream outlets in 2016, especially the email story. In fact, a Columbia Journalism Review study found that in just six days... The New York Times ran as many cover stories about Hillary Clinton's emails as they did about all the policy issues combined in the 69 days leading up to the election. When you throw in the fact that the Russians and WikiLeaks hacked and published the inboxes of Hillary's campaign chairman and DNC staffers, you start to realize just how much extra shit she had to wade through on the way to November. You also begin to realize why Hillary has spent so much of her career being more cautious and guarded than the typical politician.
3: I think the biggest thing we learned in '16 is the sense of authenticity was the most important factor in causing some people to choose the candidate they did. Donald Trump talked to them like somebody at the bar would talk to them. So they felt like, I don't really like what's coming out of his mouth, but whatever's coming out of his mouth, it sounds real. It sounds genuine. And they didn't feel that way about Hillary Clinton. Hillary was structured. She was scripted. uh, She was polished. She had some veneer over her. And everything that she said was focus group tested, which kind of made me feel like an idiot.
12: (laughs) I
10: had this sickening thought in October of 2016 when we're, like, sitting on the tarmac in Florida.
1: Jen Palmieri.
10: And I thought, we have made Hillary a female facsimile of the qualities we look for in a male president. Like, that's what we have done. And it felt like a gut punch. Like, right, well, of course people think she's inauthentic. Of course people, like, don't think they really get who she is because we put this very ill-fitting suit, if you will, and, like, forced it on her. And it's like a fundamental flaw in the design. You have to go all the way back to the beginning to fix.
7: There's an emphasis placed on authenticity, and this is completely related to the experience that Hillary Clinton had. Because as a woman running for a job that has always been a man's job. She was being told to fit into the mold of leadership that existed.
1: Rebecca Traster.
7: I am a journalist. I write about politics, media, entertainment, social movements from a feminist perspective. As we know about her 2008 campaign, Mark Penn, her campaign advisor, told her basically to cross-dress. You know, we don't. the country's not ready for a first mama, but it is ready for a first papa who's a woman, was what he said in a memo to her. And so the boxy pantsuits and the voice modulation and, you know, all of these things, she was told from the beginning lose your name, lose your Coke bottle glasses, cut your hair, do all these things to conform to this very narrow idea of what authoritative leadership might look like in a woman. And that's basically to sort of make it look slightly off-brand male. And then she was, I think, you know, for very good reason, criticized for not coming across authentically, not as herself, for being robotic, for being canned. All these messages were sent to her that were like, don't be the person that you naturally are. Be a different kind of person to persuade us that you could be a politician and a leader. But then it was, but now you're this kind of person and I think you're faking it.
1: In hindsight, there were plenty of reasons to worry about Hillary Clinton's chances in 2016. She had a long, drawn-out primary where a good chunk of voters decided that she didn't represent enough of a change from Obama's two terms, especially on issues of economic inequality. She had an opponent in Trump who fueled and then exploited the racial backlash to Obama's presidency in the most explicit and shameless way possible. She had 35 years of very public baggage, and she had to deal with the sexism and misogyny that comes along with being the first female presidential candidate. On top of all that, Jim Comey decided to send a letter to Congress less than two weeks before the election, suggesting that the FBI investigation into Hillary's emails may not be over, a misconception he only corrected two days before most voters stood in line to cast their ballots. So that wasn't helpful. And yet, believe it or not, in spite of all that bullshit, when the polls opened on November 8th, 2016, Hillary Clinton was still the favorite to win. Here's Dan Pfeiffer.
4: I thought Hillary, barring some change in the economy or some other exogenous event like spiking gas prices or war, for another financial crisis that she would right. win because Democrats had a rock solid electoral college advantage <laughs> and the country was getting bluer by the second. Like fully recognizing that Hillary Clinton has some challenges as a candidate, but and it wasn't, you know, it's funny because it wasn't even really a question.
1: Rebecca Traster.
7: I think back on the night before the 2016 election, and there was a rally in Philadelphia, and the Obamas were there, and Hillary was there, Bill was too. And it was a really remarkable rally.
5: Hello, Philadelphia!
7: There were so many people there, it was so quiet, Thank you. but in a good way.
5: I am so grateful to be And
7: here I remember thinking it was such a symbolic thing. Obviously, they'd gone to Independence Hall, the Black First family, and the woman that everybody thought the next day, or everybody, I think, on that stage actually did think was going to be elected president the next day. They'd gone to this place where the founding documents that had cut all those people out of our political leadership had been written. And I thought it was really brave because it was such an open rebuke to the kind of fetishized approach to our founding fathers and the country's founding (laughs) that we're so used to in politics. It was such a direct critique of who had been excluded from the American compact up until that point.
12: Brothers and sisters who are all infinitely worthy all an important part of this great American story. Whatever
7: the mistakes that were made, and of course there were a million, I will always be so impressed by the fact that part of that campaign was also built on genuine hope for our ability to change.
12: That this country has always been great. A country where a girl like me from the south side of Chicago, whose great-great-grandfather was a slave, can go to some of the finest universities on earth.
5: We love this country. We love what it stands for, not that we are blind to its flaws, its problems, its challenges, but I believe with all my heart that America's best days are still ahead of us. If we reach for them together,
1: So, Election Day... Jake Sullivan, policy advisor to Hillary Clinton. I was
8: at the Peninsula Hotel with Hillary and her speechwriters, Bill Clinton, some of her other senior staff. And pretty early on, as the results from Florida started coming in, it became clear to me that this night might not go our way. I had a pit in my stomach and thought, you know, that was 8 o'clock or not long after 8 o'clock.
1: This is not looking good. I was with my wife one election, I was with my kids. David Pluff, Obama's former campaign manager and White House senior advisor. We
11: had a bunch of friends over, some in politics, some not. So those of us who'd worked in politics were down on my computer in my basement and looking at Florida numbers, and it began to get really concerning places where she was supposed to get 42 or 44. She was getting 32 or 33. Some
4: of the numbers we're seeing coming in from Florida right now. It's 40% already of the vote in. It's all early
3: vote right now here. We have it as too close to call, but but Clinton with a 49-48 lead there. What are you
4: seeing in 91% numbers? in. I think Trump's leading by about 60,000 votes. I don't know if there's enough vote left for Clinton to win.
11: And I don't. When I began to look at some of the counties in Ohio, I mean, these were catastrophic changes.
6: 2,700
2: votes there in Ohio. Still a lot of vote out there, but 37% reporting. Top
6: Clinton campaign officials, and they say they're not panicking, even if they don't hold Florida or Ohio. The states that they are focused on right now include Michigan, Colorado, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Lester, we've spent so
0: a new projection, the state of Ohio, NBC News projects when the votes are counted, Ohio will go to Donald Trump. Donald Trump will win Ohio.
11: If you'd show me those numbers in Pennsylvania a week before the election, I would have thought it was fake news. I wouldn't have thought it was possible.
12: Uh, there's our, We've updated our electoral scorecard. What is going on? We are going to make this decision now. The Fox News decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States, winning the most unreal, surreal (laughs) election we have
4: ever
10: seen.
13: At around midnight, 12.30, I think, time is a flat circle, but somewhere around then, um, we knew we were gonna lose.
1: Amanda Littman, email director for Hillary Clinton, was at the Javits Center the night of the election.
13: People were crying, people were sobbing. Podesta went out and spoke to the convention hall. we
1: are still counting
13: votes, and every vote should count. We close our computers, we start walking out. We're probably the last people in Javits. At this point, I think they'd turned the Wi-Fi off. Um, And we see a tweet from Maggie Haberman that Hillary had called to concede and couldn't get a hold of anyone else on the staff to figure out what to do and started pulling everything back and hotspotting our phones and figuring out what we didn't have a plan. We didn't have a plan.
9: The president-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump.
13: I remember walking through Times Square that night from Javits to find a cab and seeing all of the people in their Make America Great hats and being terrified, just terrified.
1: People have talked about a miracle. Uh, I'm hearing about a nightmare. Uh, It's hard to be a parent tonight for a lot of us. Uh, You tell your kids, don't be a bully. You tell your kids, don't be a bigot. You tell your kids, do your homework and be prepared. And then you have this outcome, and you have people putting children to bed tonight, and they're afraid of breakfast.
13: And then taking a cab home from Times Square all the way out to my apartment in Brooklyn with one of my friends, and we both broke down in the cab sobbing. I had to pull over the cab to throw up because I was like, I can't keep this inside anymore. And then the next morning, we had to figure out what to do for her speech. God, it was bad.
1: I'm a worrier by nature. In 2008, my friends on the Obama campaign used to make fun of me for freaking out about every single poll, even if it was from a shit pollster. Same thing in 2012. David Plouffe would say, don't be a bedwetter. And so in 2016... I tried not to be a bedwetter. In fact, I told everyone else not to be bedwetters. Trust in the data, I said. Look at the fundamentals. But on election night, as I saw those first results from Florida trickle in, I started having these flashbacks to a few different times during the campaign where I had these moments of panic. I thought about Bernie winning all those primaries right before the convention. I thought about how the polls were all tied up in September when she should have been way ahead of him. I remembered how I felt sick when I first got the news alert about Comey's letter, and how I had a full freak out when I heard that polls in Michigan and Wisconsin were tightening the weekend before the election. And then I started wondering how I ever could have fooled myself into thinking that this thing was in the bag. But I didn't have that much time to reflect because I was also in the middle of a live stream. Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, and I were on set at The Ringer, the media company that produced our old podcast, Keeping It 1600. And we were all speechless. We tried to be professional. We tried to hide the shock and misery on our faces and just keep calmly analyzing the results for whoever was watching us. But after a while, we just couldn't do it. And so we finally cut the feed and drove home. And I just remember standing outside my house, talking to my wife on the phone because she'd been in Florida all weekend, knocking on doors and she was crying. And she kept asking me, how did this happen? What does this mean? What are we going to do? And I didn't have answers for her. You know what happens from there. We're still living it. Every day. But the purpose of everything you've heard so far, the entire podcast up to this point, has been to give you some context for that question we asked at the very beginning. How do we fix what's wrong with the Democratic Party? I've heard more than a few people say, don't nominate Hillary Clinton next time. Okay, sure. As we just heard, Hillary had specific baggage and faced a unique set of circumstances. But Hillary's loss doesn't explain the last decade of Democratic losses in Congress or state houses. And Hillary's campaign wrestled with a series of challenges that all Democrats will have to wrestle with in future elections. Challenges that we'll spend the rest of the series talking about. Challenges like the voters and how they see the Democratic brand.
7: It's hard to be a big tent party, and it's hard to balance those interests and make people see, like, listen, you got to get X number of seats to control this body in the state. And sometimes you have to make compromises. This isn't always Mr. Smith goes to Washington.
1: The backlash to the racial progress of the last decade.
11: Trump won majorities of white voters in every income bracket. So that says that it's about more than just poor people in West Virginia who don't have coal mining jobs anymore.
1: The debate over immigration. The big mistake Democrats are making on immigration
8: is that you don't develop your immigration policy indigenously based on your own dynamics,
1: but reactively. The growing inequality that comes from globalization and technology.
2: I think we're living through a historic change. After the Industrial Revolution came the progressive era that was a very big and bold answer to the challenges that that industrial revolution created. Where is the progressive answer?
1: The hawkish views of the Washington foreign policy establishment. A lot of Democrats feel like they they need to just sound
8: tough, and tough is a version of what the Republican message is with some of the rougher edges sanded down.
11: The media. Well, so, yes, the media, like, would rather cover a car crash than a, you know, a safe and efficient commute, right? Why did the media do
1: the 2016 election the way they did? The Democratic Party establishment and the way we organize.
13: You had no state party infrastructure whatsoever as Secretary Clinton is entering in this historic race to elect the first woman as our president. And she inherited a party that had been completely decimated.
1: The bench of candidates we've recruited.
12: The number of new people who are running for office, the number of women who are running for office, those are the kind of candidates that have the ideas and the vision that I think will fundamentally bring us into the future of our politics.
1: The obstacles faced by women who run for office.
7: This country has a real problem getting enthusiastic about women's movements, right? We're not a country that swells with pride when we think about, like, making progress for women.
1: And finally, the message we deliver about who we are and what we stand for. I don't know what the best messaging is
3: about sort of the big we, but we better figure it out and Democrats better engage there or we're going to tear this country apart.
1: Look, none of this is easy. This isn't supposed to be a how-to guide or a strategy memo. It's a documentary based on a series of interviews I conducted over the last year with nearly 100 people who study, criticize, work with, believe in, and lead the Democratic Party. Each of the next 12 episodes will deal with a different challenge facing the party, each with a history as old as this country. Questions we've been wrestling with since our founding. Now, I want to leave you with one last exchange I had with Rebecca Traster on why this is all worth the fight. I remember when we were sitting down to work on the second inaugural, you know, Obama, as usual, came up with the whole idea. He was like, you know, we should start with... The first line of the declaration, because my belief is that the you could write the entire history of the United States and the entire story of America is us is each generation trying to make that first line of the declaration real because it wasn't when it was written. But the promise was always in the founding. And the idea is that each each generation tries to do it. Um, You know, those were back in the hopeful days (laughs) before Trump. But still, you know, but,
7: but it's because and this is the thing. This is this is the bigger story. ...is that he was right to have that hope. I mean, I do sometimes think that he believed we were closer to it than we were, obviously. Right, right. right. (laughs) But he was right to have that hope because it is possible. It is possible. But the fact that it's possible is precisely what has provoked the punishing pushback that we're living through right now. It's the fact that it's within our grasp to make another huge set of steps... Toward inclusion and equality, and toward the promises, the unfulfilled promises of our founding. It's because we're on the brink of getting to that next place that we are being hit so hard. That's exactly what we're in the midst of right now. And it's not because it's impossible to get to that next step, it's because it's really possible.
1: The Wilderness is written and directed by me, John Favreau of Crooked Media. It's produced by Zach Akers and Skip Bronke of 2UP and Ruth Lickman. Tanya Sominator of Crooked Media is our co producer. Andrea B. Scott is our editor, and David Fox is our assistant editor. Our archival producer is Rebecca Kent, and our archival researcher is Gianna Jefferson. Music by Marty Fowler. Sound design and mixing by Joel Robbie. Tracy Leon is our lead interviewee researcher. Additional writing from Zach Akers and Andrea B. Scott. John Maynard and Dan Kelly were our recording engineers. Fact-checking by Anna Altman. Promo segment editing from Allison Grasso. Agency services from Ben Davis at WME. Legal services from Dean Bahat at Zifrin Brittenham and Chad Russo at Ramo Law. Clearance counsel is Catherine Ali Mohammadi from Donaldson and Califf. Thanks for listening.